Hey, everybody. It's good. Good to see you all. And um, yeah, that was that was an exciting, exciting update. Uh, and yeah, just even the stuff from this summer, uh, the you know, just the painting of the outside of the building wasn't just about making it look nicer, which it needed, but it was also about protecting the exterior of our uh, church building and all kinds of stuff. So yeah, great, great, great time. Thank you all for what you've done to make that possible. We uh, like to say around here that understanding the Bible and your purpose in life doesn't have to be a mystery, so we open up our Bibles every week, and I want to encourage you right now to open to the first page of the Bible. And if you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the seat rack in front of you, and if you are using a smartphone or a tablet, we are using the NIV, the New International Version. Today we're continuing our series on the first page, series on Genesis 1. And it is uh, a series that will take us through up till Advent. We'll do an Advent series, and then sometime in January we'll come back to this most likely. I say most likely because it's an immersive series. I don't know, <laughs> every, time I think I'm gonna, I, every time I'm going into a sermon, I think I'm going to get farther than I, than I thought I was going to get. Uh, and it's an experiment. It is so immersive. <laughs> it is an experiment. It's, it's like we've never qu- done anything quite like this to spend this much time on, on, on something. But one of the reasons that we're doing it is that the first page of the Bible really introduces like every major theme in the Bible. And it is so, it, it, it's so incredible the way that it's crafted and so breathtaking, the detail of it, that it it deserves this kind of a thing. Now, it's not saying that there aren't other passages that we could have done this, uh, but it's saying, man, this, this is, if we're going to just stop and spend some time in something and then use it to go into some other areas that link, this is the passage to do that. So, it deserves an expansive study. All right, so we're going to pray as we always do, a prayer of illumination, asking the Holy Spirit to illuminate His Word and enable us with His um, in doing His Word. And this prayer is based on Genesis 1, Acts 17, and John chapter 7. So please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, in the beginning you created the heavens and the earth. You alone are the uncreated, the creator of everything that is. In you we live and move and have our being, but you have life in yourself. And your Son has life in Himself. Remind us that we're not you. Spirit, guide us to live in the reality that all of life is in the Father and in the Son. Father, we also lift up to you so many things that are happening around the earth. We think of the Ukraine war, which we continue to lift up to you. We pray for peace to come there soon. Uh, We pray for uh, tyranny to end. Uh, We pray also, Father, for uh, the hunger that's going to come in many places of the world because of this Ukrainian, this war of aggression against Ukraine. And Father, we pray that, that, we will, um, that the world leaders, we pray for them, that they will have an answer to the hunger that could be caused as we enter into winter in a few months. And Father, uh, so many storms everywhere. You think of Puerto Rico and the challenges there, Alaska, Japan. Canada now, Florida possibly, we pray, we lift them up to you and we pray for safety and for a good response to whatever comes their way. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right. 
Uh, well, we um, are going to watch one of our five ochres read today's passage, which is Genesis 1-1. Not that we're going to get through that whole long passage of one verse, but uh, here's Genesis 1-1. Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's it. <laughs> We're going to be in Genesis 1 for, 1 for a little while, so we may have some other videos like that as well. And uh, we'll, we'll have some fun with it. So there's a, a famous line from the movie Nacho Libre, which is, I don't believe in God. I believe in science. Remember that one? If you've seen the movie. Uh, it comes up again another time where he says, I don't know why you judge me just because I only believe in science. Well, the juxtaposition of science and believing in God is a really important theme, and it's a theme that actually Genesis 1 is going to give us an opportunity to talk about later in the series. We're going to go at least for a week where we'll take a pretty big dive into how those actually aren't to be you know, put up against each other. Uh, but today we are going to talk about the elephant in the room whenever we deal with Genesis 1 which is what, if anything, does Genesis 1 tell us about how God created the world? Uh, I didn't want to talk about this today. I wanted to talk about it later in the series uh, with every new revision, and this is like the third revision of this sermon, kind of like with significant revision of this sermon. I kept coming to that, and I ended up here, and I couldn't do one more revision to get it out. So we're going to do it today. <laughs> but I want to lay some groundwork for uh, this question first. And let's start with the fact that things are not always as they seem. Things are not always as they seem. Some of my favorite movies build on that. If you've seen any of M. Night uh, Shyamalan's, or especially his, his early movies, uh, things like Sixth Sense, and Signs, and uh, what are some of his other movies? The Village, one of, a, one of my favorite. We can have that next slide up uh, there. Um, if you've seen any of those movies, you know how there comes a certain point in the movie, usually way at the end, where you discover that what you've been watching is not as it seems. And I've read books like that, and you probably have read books like that as well, that you're reading along and all of a sudden a twist happens that all of a sudden makes you want to go back and almost start over again. And uh, that's very much how, how it can often be. But when it comes to the Bible, there really is a sense in which things are not always as they seem. And there's several reasons for that. Sometimes God's people missed really the fuller meaning of something in God's Word because of what theologians call progressive revelation. Progressive revelation is just a theological term that says sometimes God holds back information. He doesn't dump it all at one time on the people. He holds back on information strategically and in His sovereignty and in His wisdom, He holds back information. So, it's not until later that all of a sudden even God's people who have been studying His Word all of a sudden have to go back and go, wait a second, things didn't, aren't, weren't as they seemed. Uh, another reason is more on us, and it's sometimes we really quickly read the Scripture, and we too quickly 
read what we think the Bible says without actually asking what does it actually say and spending time in it to understand what it actually says, and we're prone to sacrifice reality of what it actually says for clarity. It's just so much easier. It's almost like sometimes in our minds we think, give me a simple answer that doesn't hurt my brain, even if it's wrong. <laughs> and maybe after this sermon, you're going to be praying for that as well. But uh, another, reason, another reason we miss what is in plain sight is because sometimes we fail to remember that Genesis, and the rest of the Bible for that matter, wasn't written to us, even though it was written for us. We've talked about that recently, I'm not going to go into that, but the reality is it was written in a language, right, we don't, most of us don't understand. And, and so the Old Testament's written in Hebrew, most of us, most of the people in this congregation, if not all, I don't know of anybody who reads Hebrew in our congregation. And the reality is, even if you did, words, uh, when they're spoken, when they're written, they contain culture, the culture of that time. They contain culture in them. And so it's not so easy. Just because we can find an English word, like in a Hebrew dictionary, we can find an e English word that matches as closely as possible. Best English word to translate a word from the Bible, whether it be a Greek word or an English word, doesn't mean once we've found that word that now we can turn to the English dictionary and look up what it means. No. We've just found a good word, but we really still need to understand how that word is being used in the text, how that word is being used in that culture. If you speak more than one language, you know exactly what I'm talking about. If you don't, uh, you, you still can probably know because you've had enough, you know, well, what is that person saying? And, and then the person says, well, they're saying this, but this is what it means in their culture. It's not like a word for word, just doesn't, doesn't work. So, um, we have to remember it was written for us, yes, but it wasn't written to us. Now, I bring this up because almost every single word in Genesis 1-1, five out of the seven of those words are uh, not exactly what they seem. Whereas we look at them in detail, you're going to go, oh, wow. <laughs> you're going to get some new vistas, uh, some new views. Of, of those words, uh, so you can see some things you've never seen before in those words, some connections with the rest of Scripture that maybe you've never considered before. There's going to be textures and layers and nuances that you've missed all your life, even if you've been reading the Bible all your life. And I don't say this because I'm some kind of know-it-all. I am learning as I'm going through this series. I am learning. I may I'm learning enough that sometimes I may have to say, hey, remember what I said three weeks ago? I kind of have revised already <laughs> what I said. Okay, so we're learning as we go through this. It's going to be a mind-blowing adventure, I think, if it hasn't been already. I mean, one of the things I heard last week is that chart with the, with the links. It was like, wow, you know, that kind of thing. We're going to have plenty more of those kind of moments. So here we go. The words in the beginning, which is one word in Hebrew, all right? in the beginning, is one word in Hebrew, seems simple enough, right? So most of us, if I were to ask you right now, if we were to do a little survey, open-ended question, got to turn it in, and I say, what does it mean in the beginning? I think most of us would say, well, at the start of everything that is, at the start of everything that is, except God, who doesn't have a beginning. I think most of us would understand that theologically, and that's what we would say in the beginning is. 
Um, it's the beginning of the universe. And it very well might be that. It might be what it's talking about. But it also might be one of those things, not also, it might instead be one of those things that are not as it seems. So consider this at the very start, the very first word of the Bible. The word for beginning in Hebrew doesn't always talk about an exact moment in time. It can talk about a period of time. And so a case of this um, found later in the story of the Bible, uh, it's talking about a king and says, in the beginning of that king's reign, he did such and such. Well, if you read the rest of the story and you go back to his reign and you realize, and you do the timetable thing, you realize in the beginning of his reign refers to something he did on the fourth year of his reign. So in the beginning, really simple. No, not exactly. It's kind of like you can go, oh, yeah, I guess even in English it can have that kind of thing in the beginning of his reign, meaning in the early years of his reign, he did such and such. Consider this question. Secondly, in the beginning of what? In the beginning of what? Does in the beginning mean in the beginning of time or in the beginning of history as we know it? Or in the beginning of matter, material? universe, the beginning of the universe, or the beginning of the human race? Or could it be something as simple as in the beginning of the story that we're about to tell? In the beginning of the story that Genesis 1 tells? Or in the beginning, does it simply giving a summary statement of everything that starts in verse 2? And it's just saying, in the beginning, this is how the story starts, um, and verse 2 picks it up, and it's just giving a summary statement of what's coming after it. Those are some of the questions that we need to ask. Consider the fact, number three, that the Hebrew word for create often means ordering something, bringing order out of chaos, assigning a purpose to something, uh, taking something, designing it, building it, and then using it. So taking existing material and working with it. And I've got several verses in your outlines that talk about that. Okay, so it can mean creating something with the raw materials that are already there. Did God create something out of nothing? So typically, Genesis 1.1 is used as one of the verses to say, God created ex nihilo, which is a Latin term for out of nothing, all right? Um, that is correct. The Bible clearly teaches that. The question is, does Genesis 1-1 teach that? Or is it saying something else? So the Bible teaches that God is the, as some people call it, the uncaused cause. Okay, everything has a cause and effect, you know. So everything is, is done. But God has not, no, there's no cause that caused God. God has always been. The Bible teaches that very clearly. There's going to be a question in your small group study uh, and the reflection question. So, He is eternal. He has no beginning. He simply is, and He caused everything that is. But is Genesis 1-1 saying that? Maybe. Maybe not. Things are not always as they seem. All right, so that's just a kind of a groundwork to get to the question that I said we're going to look at earlier. 
And that's questions revolving around creation and science and faith and slippery slopes. <laughs> um, so, one of the questions that we ask because of our own cultural context that we're situated in in life is, how does this depiction of creation square or not square with scientific models of the origins of the universe? And a question that we often skip in asking that question is whether or not Genesis 1 is even concerned with how creation came about. We just assume that's what it's telling us. It's telling us how creation came about. And we never ask the question, maybe it's not. Maybe it's about something else. For example, if this story actually begins with a world that is wild and waste, two of the terms not in your NIV, but we'll talk about why it says that, why, why that's a good translation, wild and waste in verse 2. If that's where the story actually begins, and verse 1 is a summary of a story that begins with a world that's wild and waste, then what comes out of that is God is using raw materials, like even when He creates humanity in Genesis 2, from the dirt on the ground, He's using raw materials. Now, He created that, but is this telling the story of actually the creation of that? That's some of the questions that we have. And so, um, the, the, the story that we've been talking about up to this point is how God took chaos and created order. That's the story that it's certainly telling, and maybe telling more than that, in order to be able to dwell with us and for us to dwell with Him. And if that's the story that it's telling, well, then it may not be exactly as it seems. So if you've taken our Story of God course, uh, you know what my position is on this. Because it's on week two, I think usually sometimes a few people, one or two in the history of the 300 plus people who've taken it, have not watched or done all their homework on this, one or two of you. But usually by week two, you are doing all your homework on that. And, um, and there's a video in there. And in the video, it's about a seven or eight minute video. And I'm going to review a little bit about what I talk about in that video. But what happens is... That video is from one of my sermons, and in a previous sermon to that video, I had stated, we were talking about Genesis 1, and I had stated that there is a wide, there are a wide variety of ways that Christians believe that the, Christians who believe the Bible, kind of from our camp of Christianity, which is that we believe the Bible is authoritative, inspired, inerrant, all right, from that camp, there are Christians who have a wide variety of opinions as to what Genesis 1 tells us about the origins of the universe. It's broad. On one end of the spectrum in our camp, there are people who believe that the Bible is teaching here that the earth was created in six 24-hour periods. And that those six 24-hour periods began somewhere, depending on what you do with, with genealogies and whether you believe that there are some gaps in the genealogy, genealogies that are given in Genesis, somewhere between 6,000 years ago and 10,000 years ago. So six literal days, 24-hour days, between six and 10,000 years ago. So that's one end of the spectrum. On the other end of the spectrum are people who believe that uh, God 
got evolution going, guided evolution, and uh, that the people who believe and argue for evolution, that theory, they are correct. What they're missing, what evolutionary theory is missing, is the God that is behind it all. So those are represented within people, those positions, and everything in between, because there are lots of positions in between, are represented. And I left it at that in that sermon. And then I got an email from one of our long-term members who said, Henry, I would just really would like to hear what you actually think. Because when I'd ended there, I said, I'm not going to tell you where I am on this. And I moved on. And this person said, I'd really like to hear where, you're, where you stand on this, not because I'm testing anything, it's not because I'm concerned, I just want to know how you think about it. And not because I'm necessarily going to agree with you. Uh, she said, I just, I want to know how you think about this. And that might help me in how I think about it, and it might help me as a parent in how I interact with this on my kids. Well, I didn't want to give my opinion, and I hadn't. And, you know, all the years that I had been pastor here, I've been here 25 years at that point. I can't remember how many years ago, but let's say 15 years at least. I'd never given what my opinion was of that, and I wasn't planning on it, and I didn't want to do it because I didn't want to sow division, mistrust. You don't make it 25 years by every time you have an opinion, you put it into a sermon. <laughs> all right? It's, it's just not smart. You choose your battles, and... Um, I just didn't want to have a battle about this, and I thought maybe we could have a battle about it. But she was very persuasive, and, um, and she made a good point. Um, and so I, um, I decided, okay, I'm going, to, I'm going to share about it. Now, part of the reason I didn't want to give my opinion is because um, I can't read my own notes. I don't know what's going on here, so I didn't. I don't want to miss. There's a slide coming up, so I can't go totally. Um, yeah. So, okay. I think I know. Here's what I wanted to say. I knew that the, I thought that there might be people in our church. In fact, there is within our camp. There, there is a subcamp. That if they hear anybody kind of teach anything but a 24-hour younger theory, they pretty much either say, you're a heretic, or more likely they say, boy, you're on a slippery slope. You're really on a slippery slope here. Um, now, some people go, slippery slope, uh, I believe in slippery slopes. I really do. I, I believe... <laughs> In slippery slopes, and I sometimes see people who are on slippery slopes, and they're walking along like it's ah, everything's fine. No, you can think this, you can believe this, and everything's fine. I'm going, no, 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 no. You are you are on the way to going right down the entire hill, and so I believe in them. But I believe that Christians, in the greatest danger of slipping down a slippery slope, are those who think that they're on solid ground, but they're not. I really do. And uh, I really think that they're most vulnerable because we're all on slippery slopes. That's part of the nature of living in a fallen world. Folks, nothing is 100% clear and certain. We have to make decisions along the way. And if you don't come to that kind of conclusion that you've got to make decisions along the way, 
then, and you're not going to think, and you're not going to be careful, and you're not going to try to avoid falling down the hill, you know, all that. You, we are all on slippery slopes. And I'm going to circle back around this to say what slippery slope I'm on and what slippery slope those people who are 24-hour um, people, the slippery slope that they potentially are on or what they are on and they need to be careful. So um, I also knew about regarding division that there are people, we've got a lot of scientists in our church, and you don't have to be a scientist to believe this, but there are a lot of people on the theistic evolutionary side. I don't know how many in our church, I have really no idea, but we have a lot of scientists and I can pretty much guess that several people, you know, in their minds, they go, yeah, I can work in this field and I can work with its assumptions, but in my mind, God was in charge of it all. So I, I knew that. And I knew that a lot of those people would look at someone who believes in a 24-hour and believe that they're just ignorant. And, uh, and so that can become this, this clash. Uh, but that email convinced me to stick my neck out. And I decided next week I'm going to address it at the beginning of the sermon. I've looked in my notes to see, when did I do this? I can't find a word about it. So it got written in to the sermon by hand. It wasn't um, like right here. I've got it all written in. So uh, I became convinced. I researched, what am I going to say? Because I wasn't sure where I was on that spectrum. And I discovered, so I literally discovered something that week. And I shared it that week. And those of you who have done the story of God, you know where I'm going with this. I discovered I'm not on the spectrum. Not on it. I'm too ignorant to be able to tell you of science, to have an opinion on it scientifically. And I have my, my, my you know, antenna up because I've listened to enough people that would suggest that there's always a lot of, you know, things that get a lot of assumptions in science that God gets moved out, and then you've got this, and so I'm, I'm kind of like, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know who to believe on this. I don't know what to believe on this, but I did come to a conclusion. I don't think the Bible's talking about it. That's why I'm not in the spectrum. I don't think it's talking about theistic evolution. I don't think it's talking about each day being a million years or 100 million years or a billion years. I'm not, I, don't, I don't think it's saying 24-hour period. I don't think that that's what... I don't think Genesis 1 is giving us the how of creation. I think it's giving the why of creation. And this is the gist of my reasoning. I gave it in the video. I'll give it to you again. This is a gist. I could expand on it quite a bit now, uh, more than then. But here's, here's, here's the gist of it. In the Bible, in Bible times, the ancients believed that the mind, our thinking capacity, is found in this region, in the heart and the gut. But ancients, they didn't know. They literally didn't know that it originates in the brain, in this organ up here. The Bible never corrects that misinformation, ever. doesn't correct it. It always, without exception, goes with their conception. It locates thinking in the heart. We read our Bibles, and we think, oh, it's just being metaphorical. It's talking, when it's talking about this person thinking from the heart, we talk that way. Why do we talk that way? Because 
because the ancients have impacted us and the Bible has impacted us. And we talk about heart. Does this person have heart? You know, and all that sort of thing. So we, we, we just think that's what they're doing. They certainly know that the brain is where thinking happens, but they didn't. And so God just leaves that uncorrected as he inspires the writing of Scripture. And so the question I ask is, why would that be any different when it comes to the science of creation? When the Bible locates thinking in the heart or the gut, I don't think there's anybody, nobody I know of in all my reading and everything, people I know, Christians I know, who believes that it's teaching science. That it's saying, no, no. That's where thinking comes from. It comes from the organ called the heart or the gut, um, other organs in your gut. That I don't, there's nobody that I know who teaches that. I don't think anyone is convinced that someday science is going to discover that our thinking capacity actually comes from our hearts and not from our brains. And um, so I want to ask a question that a lot, that, that a lot of Christians need to ask this question and, and answer it, which is, how many of us would walk away from Christianity if we were convinced that to be a Christian, you have to believe that your thinking capacity comes from your gut? <laughs> I mean, if you, you became convinced or your elders or your teachers told you your thinking capacity comes from your gut. I know science tells you it comes from your brain. Don't believe science. Believe what the Bible teaches. And um, so, that was my reasoning. Uh, my reasoning in that sermon has only been strengthened since that time, and I can give way more examples like that. And I just want to make a simple point today. Let's say you're on the side of the spectrum that says, it is a six-day creation between... And we're just going to use that as an example, but you can use a lot of different examples. It is this exactly, because the Bible teaches that. You have to admit um, that God could have done it in a different way, right? I mean, even if you believe there's six literal days and God is teaching, this is how it was done. On day one, this was done. On day two, this was done. You've got to look at it and you've got to go, why did God take six days? He is able to do it in an instant, right? So is there, is there some meaning in the fact that he took six days? That's your position. Is there some meaning in that? I don't, th I don't think you can come to any conclusion, but that there is. So if I could have the next slide, um, I may repeat everything I just said, but... If God created everything in six literal days, something he could have done in an instant, then the way he did create, and the way that he inspired the retelling of the way he did it, as we've been looking at the last couple of weeks, obviously also drives home the why he created. All right. In this series, we're going to focus on the why. Does that make sense? In this series, we're going to focus on the why. You may wish if you may wish I agreed with your how. I'm not even saying I disagree. I'm, I, I told you I, I don't know. I just don't think this passage. Or you may want me. You you may wish that I believed that Genesis one teaches the how. Um, but I think we can agree that the why is really more important, considering the fact that 
for thousands of years, people didn't really focus on the how, they focused on the why. And you can see that historically. In fact, some of them didn't even believe in six literal days. I mean, way before evolution showed up, a lot of Christian thinkers throughout the years didn't think it was six literal days, that there was a, there's a bigger message in here than that God created the world in six days. So we can agree on that. We can agree that the why is more important, I think, and we can focus on that and kind of set this aside. We will talk about science, but we can set this aside. So I just want to add this about slippery slopes, and then we're done uh, with today. My slippery slope on this particular issue, and a lot of issues because of the way that I read the Scripture, is that I'm being, you know, that I'm, I'm missing something in the Scripture that's really important, right? If God is intending to tell us how He did it, and I'm like, ah, I don't really think that's that important. Um... I might be tempted at other times when I look at the Bible and I look at it and I go, I really don't, I think this is a crazy message. You know, that's, well, because they didn't understand what we understand or something like that. God was just going with their understanding, but that's not the, so you can see the slippery slope. Things can get, you know, now my answer to that is recognize, I recognize I'm on a slippery slope and I'm telling you, unless you want to argue that thinking happens in your gut, you're on that same slope with me. We're together on that slope, even if we disagree on this. Now, if, you're slippery, if you are on the side of six-day six creation um, and you think God is giving you the how, your slope might be, and the danger always, is that you read the Bible through modern lenses, maybe a little too much. And you expect the Bible to answer your modern questions in a modern way with information that now you have or you think you have because science is changing all the time. So, so you, you expect the Bible to answer questions that you have and therefore you kind of manipulate the Bible to answer your questions and you actually miss what's actually there. And over time, here's a slippery slope, you're doing that all the time. You're reading the Bible through modern lenses and you refuse to recognize that was a different culture, a different time, different language, and it takes a little bit more care to do that. That's your slippery slope. I'm not saying you're there, I'm just saying that's where you can go wrong in your, like I'm standing on the Bible truth and that's if it says a day, I'm, you know, Bible said it, I believe it, and that's why I'm going to believe it. It may not say that. You recognize that? It may not say that. So watch out for the slippery slope. All right. I was telling the green room, they said, you have a good sermon today? I said, well, because the reality is today was a classroom. It really was. And sometimes we do that around Five Oaks. You're brand new with us. Don't think that every day is, every week is a classroom like this. But today was a classroom. Next week, we're going to look at the subject of the first sentence, the subject, grammatical subject of the first sentence. And the grammatical subject is God. God is the subject of the first sentence. He's the main character in the first page. Remember, 35 times, multiple of seven, 35 times God is mentioned on the first page. And he remains the main character until the last page. His goal is to dwell with us and us with him. 
because he's a relational God. And if you are not convinced by the last two weeks, you can certainly be convinced that at the end, the goal is that he will dwell with us. I mean, it's, it says that. It literally says, in the end, this is what we're going for, that God will dwell with his people. So that's his goal, to dwell with his people. From the third page, chapter 3, from the third page until the next to the last page, um, God is on a quest to repair what happens on the third page. We block God. We sin against Him, His world, each other. We decide we want to be our own gods and all that. And so he's on a quest to repair the broken relationship with him and with each other, to make the earth whole again at, as it was as we come to the seventh day of Genesis 1, to bring us back from exile because in the third page we get kicked out of paradise and to uh, even, even to make us holy. He wants to make us holy as He is holy. He did this through the cross. He did this through the resurrection. Jesus spoke of it at the Last Supper. He died for our sin. He died for our rebellion. By faith, we can be made right with God through Jesus. So I invite you as we begin our response to take the bread. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this is a cup. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Scripture tells us that whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until that glorious day when he comes again and we live in perfect fellowship with him, all of us who have put our faith into him. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your good plan. We thank you that right from the beginning, you begin to show us in all these ways that we are made for fellowship with you, for life with you. And Father, help us not to lose sight of that as we go through our days. We, we have to keep coming back to you and confessing that we, we take you out as a subject. We make ourselves the subject of life. Help us to remember constantly you are the subject. And help us to dwell with you now in the imperfect ways that we do. But the reality is that you are with us. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.